0: Ideas, inspiration, innovation.
1: This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
0: Good morning, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and it is Friday, September 5th, 2014, and we are just coming back from our monthly or actually our summer sabbatical, and I am so happy to welcome our guest today. Uh, she is with an organization that I have long wanted to know more about, so today is going to put that to rest. Our guest today is Catherine Carr, and she is the HR and Finance Manager for Doctors Without Borders. And Catherine, I'm going to let you say it in French, assuming that you can do that.
1: Medicine sans frontières.
0: Ah, Okay, well, I studied (laughs) Spanish in school and my parents spoke Portuguese and so I speak what I call really bad portignol and uh, French was never part of my repertoire, other than the word repertoire, I guess I've got that down. Well, Well, Catherine, it is such a delight to have you uh, on the show and it's interesting because I was looking back at at your LinkedIn profile and, and the people that we are connected by and of course I knew about... Martha, uh, okay. Martha Finney, who uh, was the one who who told us that we really needed to have you on the show. And then I saw that you also know Libby Gill, and then I remembered that it was Libby Gill who introduced me to Martha, So, and the world continues to go around. Yes, it is circular for sure. Definitely. Well, Catherine, we w- are going to hear today uh, a little bit about your story, uh, about your life with the Doctors Without Borders organization. But I really love – also, the metaphorical look at this of really your personal experience of living without borders, and I think so many of us in the past have had a lot of comfortable borders around us, and for some, it was a a salary and a business card with a a really big company that you know had an important title, and then others who have built businesses and you know later those businesses have not succeeded and and those those comfort borders have been taken away from many of us, right. and so we have had to learn how to live without those comfort borders in our own life, and and you certainly had that experience uh, when you moved out of your corporate career uh, into working in the nonprofit space, and then uh, one more time removed when you uh, took your first in, uh, mission with uh, Doctors Without Borders. So let's back up a little bit, and I want to hear a little bit about, Catherine, a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and, and what your family's orientation was to nonprofit work. Did you have any exposure to that at an early age? Wow, uh, great,
1: wow, interesting question. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and that was home until I left after high school in order to go to school in uh, San Francisco, Uh as far as a, a connection to nonprofits, I can't really say that my family had a drive to that or or any kind of a, a, a solid connection to being with nonprofits. I just don't recall having that growing up. The right. one thing that was provided was just the idea of being neighborly, being kind, you know, and, and, and putting yourself out there to to help others when they need it and just to pay attention to those kinds of things. But beyond that Beyond being neighborly, no, nothing specific.
0: Very interesting. Well, I I, uh, also do a show called Uncommon Giving, and it's one of the questions I always ask of people who end up getting involved somehow in philanthropy, whether from a corporate side of, of, you know, heading up a sustainability group who happens to have giving back as a part of that component. Um, And you know it's 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 interesting how many of them had that same reaction that you had of you know laughing a little bit and then remembering right. that it really was just doing what was right and and being neighborly Correct. and uh, as i was reading the story about uh the doctor that that actually was the founder of of your organization it really was just that of of seeing that there were Wars and major disasters going on around the world, and that it really was our responsibility to to go out and help, and irrespective of where those borders were.
1: Agreed. It's and and helping is something that just comes so naturally to people. We've we we've all experienced crises at whatever level the crisis might might be at. It might be getting a document in on time for the for a big RFP response or it could be a typhoon, but people rise to the challenge and people rise to the crisis to come and aid and help others. It's just a simple fact. We do it as humans naturally, and it feels right, and it feels
0: good. Yes, yes, it does. Well, let's back up a little bit uh, corporately, and and why don't you talk a little bit through your career after you graduated? So
1: I went ahead and started working with Chevron Corporation in San Francisco as an administration on the administration side of things. I started as a legal assistant and then moved into what was called their corporate planning and quality department as the administrator for the group. So just making the making it hum, making the the division the group hum, so they could go ahead and do the strategic planning and all the quality improvement initiatives for the corporation and put those in place. And then afterwards, uh, Chevron was downsizing, and I retired. I took their retirement package (laughs) and just really started thinking about what I wanted to do, and I took some time and actually bartended and learned to teach dance and just took some time and then decided that it was good to move to Albuquerque. I don't know why Albuquerque. It just felt right. Moved to Albuquerque and then started working with a uh, recruiting firm, uh, Robert Half International, and then it was after I left Robert Half International that I found my way into nonprofits and then shortly thereafter HR. And that's where things just started feeling good. The first nonprofit I worked with was a group that was working with women to help them transition from welfare to work. And my job technically was that as a job developer, but it was. Impossible to get a lot of these women steady jobs because they were dealing with issues, homelessness, abuse, no transportation, lack of childcare. I mean, a job was the last thing that they could handle on their plate. We had to do back up and deal with other issues first. Right. And then afterwards, I uh, got focused on the HR field and found myself working with uh, an incredible organization in Albuquerque, New Mexico called PB&J Family Services the the organization works to prevent child abuse and works with at risk children and families. And I was their HR and later their HR and finance director. And it was a it was a great it was an amazing organization. Still is an amazing organization. And
0: then but then one Saturday, was that where you worked? Uh, when this one Saturday you woke up yes. and you know, kind of where where a lot of us get to. It's like you know, is this all there is? And and you know, while you may have been doing you know good and positive work, that there was just something that made you pick up your computer.
1: It it was I. I had been there for five years. I had had the chance in the last year to, to do some traveling. I had gone to Peru and to China. And then somebody at work just irked me. They they just they said something that set me off. And that Saturday, the next Saturday, I opened up the computer. And for whatever reason, I had been talking to someone else about Doctors Without Borders, about what a cool organization and how amazing they were and the uh, just incredible things they were doing in the world. And I wanted to see what it felt like to apply for a job for an international position. Now, I kind of picked Doctors Without Borders because I knew they wouldn't tire me. There was (laughs) nothing I had to lose. I had nothing to lose. I could just work away and dream away on the application process and type it in and just put it out there. And just, again, nothing to lose. And then afterwards, I shut the computer and decided that I I liked my rut. There was nothing wrong with what I was doing and what I, where I was going. It, 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 I was going to make it work. And I forgot about what I had done. And then six weeks later, they sent me an email. And they invited me to go to Austin for an interview at my expense. I, I was certain that they had gotten the wrong person, denial runs deep. <laughs> it's just I could, couldn't figure out why they would have called me told a friend, explained that I wasn't going to go, wasn't going to spend the money, wasn't going to take the time, and had made that decision. Thankfully, later that night, my friend had called me and said, I found you a cheap ticket to Austin. So I had to go. I went, went to the interview, had a great time, find out found out more about the organization, and at the end of the interview thanked them and thought it was over and came back to Albuquerque to get back into my rut, which, again, I really liked. Get back into my rut and continue on. But they kept calling. Can you do this? Can you come to this next step? Can you proceed with this next step? And I kept going at each step. And at the end of each step, just clapped my fingers, finished it, we're done. And I just never really got caught up in the possibilities until they said, all right, we're going to start looking for a mission for you. And even at that point when they told me that they were going to look for a first mission for me, I didn't quite believe it. And then they called one day and said, well, we found something. We'd like you to go to Kenya for six months. And then that's when it became real. This wow. is really happening.
0: And I know there was a lot of preparation that that went into leaving on that first trip because it's it's not like going on a vacation where you know you know that you need to pack you know a week or two of clothes and and you know typically you're staying in a place that that has been made comfortable for international travelers and yeah. you know it's it's um it's a little bit predictable you can talk to other people who've been on vacation to Kenya right <laughs> uh, you know most often they've been going on safari but leaving for 6 months which of course became 8 months um what was the preparation like? What was going through your mind? You, there's there's so much going through your mind and it's
1: you, all you can all you can do when when those occasions happen, when you there's so much going through your mind and you don't know what to do and you've got just everything jumbled in there and this you just one step at a time, step by step. And my mom calls it you do the next indicated thing. And that's what I did. And I reached out to what is now known as Team Catherine, to the people in my life, my family and friends. And I asked, I, I don't know why, it's really easy to give help, but it's hard to ask for help. Don't oh, understand yeah. <laughs> that. But I started asking for help and I identifying people who could take charge and take pieces of my life and, and be responsible for them, people obviously I trusted. I found someone to be in charge of basically my life. She would had complete control of my accounts. She could manage the house that I was leaving behind. She was able to manage the mail and deal with any issues that come up. I found someone who would take who would take care of the dogs. I found someone who would manage the my hair <laughs> which is a silly thing to think about, but it's something you think about. I had a friend who went shopping with me to help me get the right clothes all I had were business clothes I needed different clothes and I'm not a shopper to begin with so I asked a friend to help me go shopping to help me come up with some a simple packable easy lightweight wardrobe that I could take with me uh, I had someone in charge of gum of all things because he got into the game and wanted to be part of the part of the team so we just started finding duties I have a friend who's in charge of my car when I'm gone and he just takes care of it he stores it he takes care of it he gets it ready for me when I come back it's you know, you, you, there's just so much you can't do without our teams. We need our teams right. in our lives. It's been critical. So, so, yeah. so
0: tell us, tell us about. So you get on the plane. It's a very, very, very long trip to Kenya. Uh, I have mm. done an, a, an enormous amount of international travel because that's okay. what I was involved in before I went out on my own uh, 18 years ago. Um, but so you get off and and the airport actually is is not like you would think of in in third world countries um you know it it is africa but you know it, it's a, a more affluent airport than than most so tell us about that experience
1: well you, it's yeah cuz it's not until you get on the plane that you start thinking about what's happening because you're so busy before you get on the plane getting everything in order that you don't have time to think So you get on the plane and you start thinking, and that's when all of the worries and all of the dreams and all of the the stuff start hitting, but by then it's too late. You're already on the plane. You're on your way. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And thankfully, when you work with MSF, with Medicine Sans Frontieres, when you work with MSF, there's always lots and lots of briefing material, so you always have a lot to read and a lot to do to kind of take your mind off the worries. So... You know, all right, Captain. first mission, let's go. You're going to hit it. This is going to be cool. You're ah, just excited, but a little bit of worry, but try to hide that. I get off the plane. They tell me there's going to be a guy there with my name on the board. He's there. Wow, things are just snapping right along. This is great. We get in the taxi. The guy looks at me. I look out at him. We just kind of nod to each other, and he says, where do we go? <laughs> <laughs>
0: And this one cracks me up because I, I am the kind of person who doesn't always have that information, but in, in that exact same situation, I would have thought the same thing that you did, that he had the sign, why wouldn't right. he know where you were going? So right. how did you get there?
1: Well, it was hysterical. He, I just, I looked at him and looked at him. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Right <laughs> I am in your taxi. Now you got to deal with me. I'm yours now. Now I'm your responsibility. Sorry, but this is how it goes. So we looked at him and said, okay. And his English was his English was better than my Swahili. That's for sure. So we we figured, okay, I'm with Doctors Without Borders, MSF. Yeah, which section? It's a little complicated. It's a, you know, there's a lot of NGOs in the area. And finally, I convinced him. Why don't you call your dispatcher? He called the dispatcher. They had a long conversation in Swahili, and they just decided to send me to the the house that they sent most of the people to normally. Fine. It's midnight. It's late at night. Yeah, it's late at night in Kenya or in Nairobi. No problem. Either way, I'm going to end up at an MSF house. It might not be the right one, but we'll figure out from there. And I swear to you, when he looked at me and said, where do we go, I thought for sure it was a test from MSF to see if I could handle a situation <laughs> like that. I was certain they were testing me. Because uh, the, the whole point about all of this stuff is that each step of the process, little little things would come up. Can you go on Tuesday instead of Thursday? Oh, wait, we're going to change it. Can you go on Wednesday instead of my? I mean, all of this back and forth. And I was certain, oh, they're just testing me to see if I'm flexible and can handle this kind of stuff. Because if I can't handle this, what they're asking me to do now, then I shouldn't be going. Right and and i was certain this guy was part of the testing process certain at first but then i realized he
0: really didn't know where we were going <laughs> oh and i can i can just picture that um uh, <laughs> so so you ended up spending not 6 months but 8 months in kenya and yeah. the the one thing that stuck out to me about that story uh when when i listened to your interviews with martha um, you talked about how the the power structure uh, and what was visible in who was supposed to be in charge and who was really in charge, and right. I found that fascinating because again, I think when we take a look at at the borders of our life that keep us comfortable, part of that is knowing that someone is in control, and 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 if and if it isn't you, you need to know who it is and need to be able to trust them. But if there's this shadow structure, how do you learn that? Experience trial and
1: error, making big mistakes. That's, I mean, that's that's the only way I know how to learn is just by making big mistakes. The, And I find that since that time in Kenya, I found that it's not just in Kenya. It's in the majority of the African countries I've been to. There is a shadow structure, as you say. In the majority of, um, and to some degree, I think it's extreme in in the in the Africa countries, but I do think that there's levels of it throughout. We have these unidentified or un-unformal—I know that's not a word—informal leaders in our workplaces, and I I came—I hit up against that pretty hard in Kenya during my first mission, which. You know, that's what first missions are all about, is learning, learning. And the idea that if I really wanted to be successful, not just me, but the entire team wanted to be successful on implementing something, making a change or doing something that would improve what we were doing, there had to be a lot of communication going on. And it really helped to know with each group of employees who is not just the supervisor, but who is the one everybody went to and i and I always go back to the drivers and the guards in m s f stories because the drivers and guards in m s f are a force to be reckoned with there's usually numerous there's usually a number of them and and and, and they just have a very solid foundational perspective on things. And they see everything that's going on. They know what's happening throughout the... I mean, they knew more about what was going on in my personal life than the the people I worked with just because they, you know, lived and worked, the guards lived and worked outside of my bedroom window so they could hear me on the phone with my family. You know, so they, they are aware. They know who's coming in and out of the house. They're very aware of what's going on. The drivers are taking you places, listening to conversations that are happening in the vehicle. So you find the people who, who who lead others through the places, who, who lead others. And it's just, there is a shadow structure. And in some places it's, it's extreme, and in some places it's there, but just not so evident.
0: Right, right. And well, how the do you other find thing it? That, mm-hmm.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. No.
0: no, I was going to say, the other thing that, that struck me about your your story was that, uh, one of the things that you were told before you got there was not to make any changes right away. Right. And you know, and tell us a little bit about your responsibility because it's interesting. We think about Doctors Without Borders being all doctors and nurses and and people with medical background, and we don't think about finance and HR and, and those roles. So uh, if you could just address those two things, sure. The uh... In fact, in
1: doctors, the, the medical field makes up what I would I I'd have to look at the numbers for sure, but makes up a small portion of any team in the field. The doctors can't do anything. The medical professionals can't do anything without the logistical support and the administrative support. They can't do anything if there's not tents or beds or supplies. They can't do anything if there's not national staff or things being paid for and managed. So, yes, uh, MSF needs not just doctors and medical staff, they also need HR professionals, finance professionals, logisticians, people who can do fleet management, people who can do construction, who do water and sanitation, who can build things, who can fix things, uh, and who can manage security, which is a key job of the log- of the logistician is managing the security of any of any uh, site that we happen to be in.
0: Right. And
1: I have to be honest with you, I forgot what the first question was.
0: Oh, it was the whole issue of excuse me managing change and being told right. that that you couldn't go in and make changes or you shouldn't rather. The the idea of the
1: managing change. So one of the thing that happens with what the expats, people like me who come from different countries to work in another country, we rotate out so quickly. A maximum time usually is up to a year, and that's rare. I mean, six months, eight months, a year, sometimes even three months. There's a lot of rotation in the expatriate staff. One of the things that you're taught during the orientation to MSF is you're gonna wanna go in and you're gonna wanna change things because we all have our ideas of how things should be. But going back to the Kenya example, this is a project that's been in place for over 10 years. They don't need someone coming in changing policies and procedures that have been in place for 10 years. That's not the role the role right. is continuing to implement continuing to reinforce those things and there's tons of stories about people coming in and the first thing they do is change the furniture in the office well you've got to ask yourself in a 10 year in the history of a 10 year project how many times has the furniture been changed in an office and for the <laughs> staff members who have to live with that i mean their bosses are changing if not every 6 months every year Right. That's, that's a hard place to be in for a staff member to have your boss rotating that much, each one with their own strong opinions, beliefs, and ways of working, and expectations, and the staff are continually adjusting. So the idea of don't change anything is, is not that don't change it if it needs to be changed. If it needs to be changed, we'll have the conversation, we'll discuss it, we'll change it. But don't go in and, on day one, two, three, or even 15 Start changing things just for the sake right. of changing them. The refrigerator does not need to be moved in the first 15 days that you're there. It can stay right there. It's receiving electricity when, when the electricity is running. It's <laughs> fine. Leave it alone. Right. Focus on your work. And that's, that's the story of the don't change. And it's just we go into places and that's the first thing we want to do. We want to make our
0: our marks. Our, it, it, exactly. We want you know We know what we're doing.
1: I know what I'm doing. I'm going to move the refrigerator.
0: Right. <laughs> so, when you finished the eight months in Kenya, how much time passed before you were sent to Malawi? Uh, two to three
1: months. I took a two to three month break and then mm-hmm. went to
0: Malawi. And I have to admit, I had to pull up a map of Africa uh, <laughs> to even see where it was. And and actually, I was surprised when uh, because I was looking up the the camp, uh, the the city that you were in Kenya and saw that it was on Lake Victoria, which had to right. be spectacular. Right. And um, so so you moved on to your next assignment, which ended up uh, actually being one year. So what was right. it about that assignment that required you to stay one year? Okay.
1: Uh, quick note about bringing out the map. If, if my job does nothing else but to improve the geographical knowledge of the people I come into contact with, I'm considering my life a success. <laughs> because it's amazing how many times people now are pulling out maps when I talk to them. I love that. Malawi. Malawi is a project. It's an HIV/AIDS project, and it's been around for. I'm gonna not get the exact date. A long time, 20 years or more. It's been this project has been around. It is. It was a one-year project for for my position, because at that time, I became the, instead of working in the field, I worked at the country level, managing the the HR and finance for the country projects. Uh, we had one project at the time, and during the time I was there, we had a measles epidemic breakout that required oversight. It's a one-year project because the security context is easy. There, there's not a lot of security issues in, in Malawi so it's possible to stay for a long time it's a it's a mission where they it's possible to have a life you can have weekends off normally you can you know at the at that time we were able to drive cars into the city and go to the city and there were restaurants and there were it's not it's a very poor country but there were opportunities to create right. a life so that's why it became a one year project also at the country level the less rotation at in those positions the better because those are going to be the positions that can, can keep the stability in the field it's a little bit rougher normally the living conditions so and that's why it was a one year project i also accepted the one year project because i wanted the experience at the country level i wanted to it just it, i wanted to because why not why would i not do right. that right i, I have to that, that that it just made sense
0: so from there you went on to Uganda and and that mm-hmm. was a shorter assignment. How did how did that change you? How you know how did your role change? What were your experiences in Uganda?
1: This is the really amazing thing
0: about working with MSF is that there's so many different
1: projects and so many different needs. And once once you've established your skills or once you're you're recognized as having a special set or a good set of skills. There's always a different project and a different need in various countries where they could utilize you, and the, and it's a great position for someone who doesn't like to sit still very long working with MSF <laughs> because you do get to move, and and it kind of satisfies that need a little bit. In Uganda, it was a, it was a, it was three months because it was a project specific. There was a specific task. There was a Kind of a, um, looking into the practices of one of the departments, and there's there's always issues of looking into you know theft basically. Um, right. Um, they're, 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 this does happen. So looking into processes, why are things disappearing? Who's who's at fault? Where does the the inf Where does the information lead you to? Why did it happen? Who wasn't following what process? Do we need to put in a new process? That was the three month project in Uganda was to do basically right. a a recap a review an investigation into a situation that had occurred
0: mm-hmm. so then you moved uh from central eastern Africa over to the, the west coast to nigeria uh-huh. and and that was a a short uh in, engagement i'm I'm curious as to the cultural differences that you saw. I mean, clearly by that time you were deeply steeped in, in the Central and East African culture, even though those countries, uh, especially Malawi, uh, you know, was some distance away from Uganda and Kenya. Um, I would imagine that there were similarities between those countries. How was Nigeria different? I, I'm, I'm thinking about,
1: about Nigeria. I went to Nigeria to fill a gap. There was a two-month gap in a, a- position, so I went to Nigeria to fill a gap the in all of the countries i've been to the i'm I'm continually struck, yes, by the similarities the differences there there're subtle differences there's uh and and I love the Nigerians working in Nigeria because in Nigeria, you know what they're thinking. <laughs> There's no <laughs> room for doubt about what's on their mind, and I love that because that's how I communicate. I am not very I, subtlety doesn't work well with me. I don't understand it very well, and sometimes I forget to communicate it well. I, so I enjoyed working in Nigeria for that reason because there was never a moment when I didn't. If somebody was upset, I knew they were upset. They told me they were upset. If somebody was happy, they told me they were happy. If there was an issue, I was—I knew about the issue. I never really had to go searching for that information because they would come to me and tell me what was going on, and I, I really appreciated that about them. And I didn't find that to be the case so much in Kenya, and and not not very not hardly at all in Malawi. I found that in Malawi, I was doing a lot of searching and trying to
0: figure out what was going on, but not right. not in Nigeria. Well, then you had a very interesting break for three months, and uh, I, yes. I know you were working on your intensive French course. But you right. were you were in Paris, and and I'm assuming that there's still a uh, is that still the headquarters? Yes. Well, Paris is the headquarters. There's the MSF setup
1: is a bit complicated, but yes, Paris is one of the the headquarters for the section that I work with at this point,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is yes. And, had you uh, been to Paris before? Uh, the first time I had gone to Paris was when during the recruitment process was when they had it. They had a two-week training to go to Paris for the HR and finance coordinators. So that was the first time I had been to Paris. And then since then, every mission usually starts with a briefing in Paris and a debriefing when you leave the mission.
0: Ah, got it. Bummer. I worked for a company that was based in Paris, <laughs> so I, I have spent a lot of time there.
1: Yeah. No, great street walking. I mean, I, that's just that's just get on your shoes. Let's go. Let's go. There's right. Amazing things.
0: And so did you go to Paris because you knew already that you were going to the Ivory Coast, or or was that decided later? Well, what we had agreed on was that by the time
1: I had finished working in, in Nigeria, um, and throughout the whole time there's always the evaluation process and the review process with, with MSF, and they're amazing at this. What do you want to do? Where do, you, where do you want to go? Do you want to stay with MSF? Is this your last one? And so there's a lot of discussion. And I had, from the beginning, explained to them, I wanted to learn French, and I wanted to join their emergency team. So we, you know, asked at the end of each mission. That would always be confirmed. I would reiterate, and we would always take one, one more step towards that goal. And the goal of joining the emergency team required learning French because it just increased the number of places you could go as part of the emergency team. So three months in Paris to learn French, and then a mission in the Ivory Coast right after to solidify the French. Got it. And working 100%, working and living 100%, 98% in French, because every now and again they would take pity on me and speak to me in English.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you speak any foreign languages before you took the job? I
1: had uh, enough Spanish to get into trouble, but not enough to get out of it.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, I know your next mission after the Ivory Coast you can't really say much about because you uh, did go to Syria uh, several right. times. Uh, and, again, uh, you know, talk about a cultural difference yeah. from uh, from the other other coast of Africa. Right. So, no, can, great... can you just talk about culturally? I mean, I, I know you can't talk specifically about your mission sure. there.
1: No, it's just, it's another culture where, you know, each culture that you run into is just beautiful for its own reason. And the culture that I ran into in Syria was just a beautiful culture, very family-oriented, very communicative, again, with one another. Uh, definitely opened my eyes to, to me being more aware of the context I was in and being more sensitive to the people around me. Far more so than I was in Africa because Africa's predominantly Christian, but right going to the Middle East, there is a, the level of respect to have to have for someone who's not christian and right. acknowledge it and accepting it and learning to appreciate also the culture and learning about a new religion and and trying to come to terms and understand why things are This way, and not the way I normally know of them, and taking the time to to ask questions. It's a culture that very much wants to share and answer your questions, and have been were very truthful with me and open, and they also accepted the fact that there we were not dressed exactly as, but trying to adjust to their dress as women, especially, in order to be respectful and. And and you do that in order to bring about the work that you want to do. And there's tons of debate as to whether or not you should or should not. For me, if I'm going to be in another country, I'm going to do what I can to adapt to those cultures in order to do what I'm there to do. Because I don't need the fact that I'm different distracting from what I'm really there to do. I'm not there to change a culture. That's not my job. Exactly.
0: So you went you went from there to another Middle East engagement in Jordan, mm-hmm. and it's funny because yeah. the first place I ever went to in the Middle East was, was Amman, Jordan, and I will never forget actually leaving. And, and I was going to uh, support my boss in a meeting with the Arab Air Carriers Organization because I've spent okay. my life in the travel industry and as we're walking in the door and i of course had done the presentation the powerpoint for him you know to get him ready and as we were walking in the door he uh said to me oh by the way you're making the presentation
1: <laughs>
0: and so i walk into this room with you know uh, it was all men and one woman uh, uh layla from um from egypt there she was the only woman in the room and i just kept my eyes focused on her the whole time cuz i just i i, I just didn't know what to do and i was still fairly young i was in my early 30s and uh but then i remember leaving jordan and they were going through my luggage uh you know pulling everything out but the entire time the guy had his eyes focused on my chest and i thought <laughs> you're not even looking at my stuff like do do you know what it all feels like <laughs> but uh it, yeah it was it was quite an interesting uh, ordeal for me it-
1: Jordan is a great place. Um, I was specifically in Amman, and you're right. And it's interesting because I think what you experienced from from the time I was in Jordan, I think what you experienced is the fact that there's a heavy cultural expectation and value of men and women and the roles that they play. But yet in Jordan, women are allowed... They don't have to cover their hair. They don't always have to wear the the, the dress, the hajib, the burqa, if that's the the case. And so I think, and I find it funny because I believe perhaps you'd have to talk to them more. The men are a bit conflicted because they're right there between, well, here's what they should be doing, but here's what they are doing, and we're still not comfortable with what is going on here, but we don't know. How best to behave, but yet we're still incredibly fascinated by everything that we're seeing. Right, exactly. And it's it's that inability, I think, to to really balance those things, those those the, the right. two extremes. And and I'm I ran up against it numerous times in Jordan myself, where it's just. It, it, and it becomes difficult. It becomes
0: Yeah, and horrible. I I never experienced that anywhere else in the Middle East. I mean, I spent time right. in Kuwait and a lot of time in the UAE and uh, just never had that same experience. And right. maybe because I was young and maybe it was because it was my first time in, in the Middle East. I was more more attuned to that. Well, so after Jordan, so you finally got your emergency response job and, and you went to the Philippines in response to the typhoon.
1: Yeah, The um, in, in fact, the, the emergency team contract started with the Syria position. And then oh, even okay. in Jordan, because Jordan at the time, the emergency team, we were working in the Zatari refugee camp in southern oh. in that, that was dealing with the southern refugees outside of Syria coming into Jordan. So And we had set up a maternal child care medical clinic at the same time in the same area to deal with same crisis but just in a different area. And then yes, then uh, they had sent me on a vacation after Jordan, and I came back from the vacation with a and arrived in Paris. And they said you'll be going to the Philippines tomorrow, and that was two, three days. Wait, eight, nine, ten, four days after the typhoon hit. The typhoon hit on the eighth, mm. and I arrived in the Philippines on the twelfth. Um, after and we had team we had team members in the Philippines on the ninth, the day after the typhoon. We had we had team members starting the process right. incredible incredible and i i had never i had only seen pictures of typhoon or mother nature damage mother nature damage on on the tv to see right. it in in person is just a completely different thing the level of destruction the lo- i mean it's just non-discriminate it's just completely non-discriminate and it just right. wiped out everything on this island and six thousand over six thousand people died and they're still cleaning it up and still dealing with the ramifications and still rebuilding infrastructure. And that was that was a, an amazing experience. And that's where you saw people come from out of, from nothing, with this horrible, horrible experience, horrible loss, and still come out ready to help others. And that was right. an incredible experience to see that happen
0: right and so after that your last your last mission was back to the central african republic so so back once again to africa which i would imagine by that time felt a little bit more like home than home
1: to some extent you're right yeah to some extent but the the countries are so different and the situations are so different the central african republic right now is and if, if you know, you're not aware of what's going on. Look it up. There's, it's basically, a, you know, the UN waivers on whether or not to call it genocide. It's m- Muslims and Christians killing each other. They're they're killing mm-hmm. each other. And right now, the the, the Christians mm-hmm. have rounded up Muslims and are basically taking them, pushing them out of the, out of their homes and out of their country. And it's an active, violent region right now. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it, it's it's just horrible. It's and 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 it's interesting because I saw the violence at the level of Syria, and that, and I'm, apologize for saying this, but that violence made sense to me because it's a political violence. It's about it's it's an anonymous violence. It's people dropping bombs. It's right targeting. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know why that's something that made sense to me. To be in the Central African Republic where people are shooting directly at one another, neighbors shooting each other with machetes, with right, firearms, it's just so, so much more personal. And I right. just really, stru- that was a hard struggle for me was to understand how that was going. And and dealing with, you know, gunfire and listening to the grenades at night and hearing what's going on, it's just awful.
0: right. So when you had your debrief from that experience, when you went to Paris and they asked you all of the same questions again, mm-hmm. um, right. and and I understand you you uh, made the statement of you know it's not the gunfire that's bothering me, <laughs> but but you have been home since May, and it it sounds to me, and I'm I'm not adding up the time here, but has this been your longest stretch not not out in the field, and are you yep. going back? That's,
1: yes, I am going back. I, I am going back. I in, love the work. I enjoy the work. I love the learnings and the meeting the people and the, the travel and learning. And I love learning about all, all the things I don't know. There's so much that I don't know, and I love continuing that process. And I will go back. And we're I've talked to MSF, and we we're making plans. And what we've decided that I'll do is I'll take the rest of the year off basically and i'm going to explore for ways to continue working with msf and to create a life so i can support my hobby of working with msf it's not many jobs that will let you traditional jobs that will let you go away for six months and come back so i need to find a, a way to allow room in my life for msf but then also have a life because after after five years of basically living on the road and doing this, I am ready to settle down somewhat as far as having a space. I don't have my own home right now. I, I, I live thanks to the generosity of my friends and family, and I get to stay with them. It's it's an, it's an amazing thing, but it's time for me to try to find my space and settle down somewhat and then also find way. So you did eventually sell your home? I did. I sold my home when I was in Malawi. Yeah. Wow. Because I, 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 I knew after, when I was in Malawi, I knew that this was something I wanted con- to continue doing.
0: Right. So, yeah,
1: I sold my home and, and gave, yeah, finalized all the permanency and permanency as much as it would be and put everything in place, and, you know, that's how I did it. So now I'm wow. just finding a way to create a new life with MSF a large part of it. Absolutely. Can't imagine not doing it.
0: Well, Catherine, there <clears throat> there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, I know we haven't even touched on on just the the whole issue of of the physical things that you have to give up and the the comforts, but uh, I so appreciate you sharing your story with us and really showing us how how um insignificant the things that we get upset about really are in the big scheme of things, and you know that's right. what always occurs to me anytime I talk to anybody who's who's working full time in in work that is is you know funded by donors, and um, so Doctors Without Borders is a completely donor supported organization.
1: Yes, ninety percent of the funds that we receive come from individuals and corporations and foundations, governmental uh, and other industries or other NGO support systems, it makes up 10%. The majority of the donations are from people like you and me. Wow. Absolutely.
0: Well, when, when I hear you talking about all of the infrastructure that's necessary, and I realize that I was um, mistaken in my thinking that it was just doctors and nurses going out and that the infrastructure was actually provided by the locals which, you know, in, in retrospect, it, it's ridiculous to think that that could even happen because they wouldn't need your help if they could, you know, right. sustain that kind of an operation. So it has been just an incredible learning experience for me. Um, so I, all I can do is just thank you for taking your time with us on a Friday. Uh, it has been a great way to kick off the Executive Girlfriends Group uh, radio show season. And... uh I am just so thrilled to to meet you, Martha. Just spoke so highly of you, so it's terrific to meet you. Well, thank you. It's
1: it's been a, a pleasure. I'm happy to happy to share. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So <laughs> well, great. Well,
0: next week our show is our guest is Charlotte Beers, and her book that she has written is "I'd Rather Be in Charge," and it's a, a legendary business leader's roadmap for achieving pride, power and joy at work. And I know we can all use a whole lot more joy in our lives. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. And if you'd like more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, we do have a website, executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Our members uh, actually hang out on Facebook uh, in a private group there. So if you're interested in joining, just visit our website and then come hang out with us on Facebook. And join us every Friday afternoon at noon Eastern. And we will see you again next week.
1: You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald.